Hello from the California Lawyers Association annual meeting in San Diego, California. I'm Sarah Reef. I am a board member of the California Lawyers Association and a member of the criminal law section. I'm a member of the criminal law section also, and I'm Jim Lamb. I am Janet Hong, and I'm also a member of the criminal law section as well. And we're on the road with Legal Talk Network. We're back. Thank you so much for joining us on On the Road. It's a pleasure to be here. Today, we are going to talk about jury selection. Jim, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I spent uh, 28 plus years as a public defender and uh, retired from that position in 2014. Uh, While I was with the public defender's office, I was the solo or lead counsel in 100 different jury trials. In addition, picked a couple of other uh, jurors in cases that didn't go all the way to verdict. And Janet, how about you? What's your background? I am a criminal uh, defense attorney. I've had my own practice for three years. I also have a background in uh, being a public defender, both in New York and in California. And I also worked for a plaintiff's employment firm for a couple of years uh, to get a little break from criminal, but now I'm, I'm back. Great. And today you both presented at the California Lawyers Association annual meeting on jury selection. And generally, I'd like to touch upon what you discussed at the programming. How important is jury selection as part of the trial process? I think it's crucial to um, how your case can turn out. Um, If you want to get the result that you want, you have to know um, who your jurors are and what the issues are. And, uh, you know, people say your jury will make or break the case. And Jim, what do you think when you're an attorney, a practitioner, and you are planning for your trial, what are your goals for jury voir dire? Well, my goals are to uh, screen out those jurors that will be most unfavorable and incapable of being fair to my client. Uh, I make up a list of the topics that I think are of great concern, stereotypes that might infect the trial process, preconceptions that are wrong that people come in with, and I try to think about how I'm going to deal with those and how I'm going to get jurors to to tell me, in all honesty, how strongly they hold to those kind of preconceptions or myths. So you're not necessarily picking your best jury, would you say that? That's right. Uh, Just as I'm trying to get rid of the jurors who are most unfavorable to me, The prosecution is trying to get rid of the jurors that are going to be most unfavorable to the prosecution. So most of of what we get for a jury is going to be kind of a meeting in the middle. And Janet, what if you have uh, problematic facts, like, say, a dead body, something like that, in a homicide case? How do you deal with those during jury voir dire? Sure. um, And this is something that we discussed during the presentation, is if you have bad facts for your case, you want to front those don't shy away from them. If you're trying a murder case, you want to make sure that um, the jury hears that they may be seeing a photograph of a dead body and ask, you want the jury to hear dead body as many times as you can to desensitize them to, um, to that photograph that's, that you know is going to be coming out during evidence. You don't want the jury to be seeing that photograph for the first time during evidence. And so you can't shy away from your bad facts. You want to front those um, front and center and raise those issues right from the beginning. 
because if jurors are going to have a problem with that and not be able to sit for that particular case, you want them off your jury. So don't avoid the bad facts. Don't avoid it. Embrace it. All right, Jim, you hear a lot of practitioners worried about jurors in the pool or um, that you're questioning infecting the other jurors. How do you deal with that situation during your voir dire? Well, um, it can be difficult. You may have it going on without your knowledge. Ideally, you would have a colleague or one or more family members sitting in the audience of prospective jurors knowing that they cannot speak to those prospective jurors but can report to you. Uh, but sometimes you're all alone with you and your client and, and, and you're a little bit helpless in terms of what might be going on there. I was assisting another attorney one time in a domestic violence case. It was a really good defense case. Ultimately, uh, the lead attorney took it and won it. But when I was in there, the jurors were actually doing it right in front of us, infecting each other. And uh, fortunately, it got so outrageous and so awful that the judge ultimately dismissed the entire panel and just started over. Oh, wow. How about, Janet, giving us maybe a couple of your most helpful hints for jury selection and voir dire? Well, one we already touched upon, which is um, fronting your the tough issues in your case and not shying away from that. I think every lawyer is going to have their own style during voir dire and in their, the way that they interact with jurors. Be yourself. Let your personality come out. Show your humanity. Um, those are some of the things that I think it's tough to do, I think, in your, for your first couple of trials. But when you get more comfortable, to really just have a conversation with them and not be so uh, beholden to your script, but be able to just talk to them like you would anybody else um, during the process. Because I think that's what's going to get them to open up to you when you're just talking to them like a regular person, not as a lawyer. And Jim, part of our presentation today, you touched upon some of an attorney's body language or positioning in the courtroom. Can you um, explain a little bit about that for our listeners? Well, if you're looking down at your notes all the time and making notes about jurors when you're trying to stand in front of them and talk to them, it looks like you're really not paying attention to them. So it's better to just have a conversation with them. And then when you're ready to move on to a different topic, if, if you don't recall what your next topic is, just step back behind you to the notes that you've stashed on the lectern just a few feet away. And that way, then you're in a position to move right back in and talk to the jurors some more. And Janet, you touched upon um, some of the new technology today that, as we know, many of us are dealing with post-its and scrambling to keep an order as jurors are coming in and out of selection. Can you touch upon what you've been doing recently? Sure. Um, I just finished a trial not too long ago where I, um, the last three trials actually that I that I did, I used a program called iJur. Um, it's not the only one that's out there, but there are several others I think that are becoming more popular with, um, with trial lawyers. It's a program that basically tries to mirror the uh, process of selecting a jury using post-its, which is what how I was trained and I think most people still do it. I liked it because it's less cumbersome and it's easier to type in everyone's information and to keep track. It's difficult, more difficult, I think, in terms of keeping track of the jurors that are actually kicked because all the jurors get, uh, the jurors that are kicked get sent to a trash can like it would like on your computer. And it's hard if you need to go back to see who that juror was. It's difficult to, to locate that. But I think 
after two or three times, I think I'm now beginning to be more comfortable with it. So I think I'm, from here on out, I'm just be using iGer. And Jim, how about giving us a story about uh, maybe something that happened uh, during jury selection and or a technique that you use? Well, sometimes um, prosecutors know that there's going to be a conflict in the testimony of witnesses, and they're afraid that jurors will automatically see any conflict as giving rise to reasonable doubt. So they'll try to minimize reasonable doubt by talking to people and, who are on the prospective jurors and saying, well, you've had to decide sometimes in your, in your job as a teacher or as a supervisor uh, who's telling the truth and who's lying, right? And they'll say, yeah, so that's something you can do, isn't it? Well, that's, that's a ridiculous comparison, and I understand why prosecutors make it, but it needs to be shot down as soon as possible. So with the next group of jurors, you can counterattack and knock that down by saying, and this is with people that you work with every day and you see every day, and that you've perhaps, in the case of your own children, known your whole life, and, and that's what helps you decide who's telling the truth and who's lying. Do you think it would be more difficult to do that with somebody you've never met before? So that's something you can do there. Uh, also, we're supposed to not try the case during jury selection. We're supposed to not inject a lot of facts and law in, and yet we're supposed to find out if people can be fair. It's really not possible to do that without getting into the facts and the law a little bit. So as, as long as you're being fair and not going overboard and, and, and being misleading and taking up too much time, you will be permitted by the court to get into the facts and the law a little bit. The more you get into it, though, the greater the likelihood will be that you get objected to. And you don't need to be afraid of that. It's important for jurors to know, so that your own credibility isn't damaged, that jury selection is an inexact science. And there are no exact rules. And so merely because an objection has been sustained doesn't necessarily mean you've done something wrong. It just means that's, that's the call that the court is making. So I like when that first objection comes to tell the jurors that, you know, jury selection is a little like walking a tightrope. We're not supposed to get into the facts or law during jury selection, but on the other hand, we do have to get into them a little bit to, to talk about whether you can be fair with this particular set of facts and law. So it's always a question of how far we should go, and, and, and I understand the judge's ruling. So that, that, I think, helps neutralize any harmful impact on you of being objected to. So as long as you're not cheating and, and trying to cheat, it's okay to go there and get objected to as long as you're not going overboard on the facts and the law. Janet, how do you feel about having lawyers on your juries? Uh, personally, I do not like lawyers on my jury, mainly because I don't want any one person on my jury to have an undue influence on the rest of the jurors. I think that when you have a person that is trained legally in certain principles of law, um, like the burden of proof, that other jurors are going to look to that lawyer to basically take charge and tell them what to do. And, you know, from a criminal defense perspective, I want jurors to uh, argue in the back and not be um, unduly influenced by one particular person because all I need is one to say not guilty. I did have a law professor on my jury when I first started out uh, practicing in New York. And uh, that law professor ended up being actually very good for my case and we won. Um, I spoke to her after the trial was over 
And, you know, she just approached it just like anybody else. Like, we don't know. We haven't heard any evidence. And we all sort of kept an open mind. And she knew her position as well as a law professor. And she was cognizant um, herself. She told me that she knew that the other jurors may look to her for advice. And so she took, sort of took a step back and uh, made sure that everybody sort of was heard. And so it ended up being working out for me. But generally speaking, I don't want anybody that's a lawyer on my jury. What are your thoughts on that one, Jim? I have to agree. But before I excuse them, I'm, I might say something out loud that the other jurors will hear so that the other jurors won't feel like I'm afraid to have a lawyer on the jury because my case is weak. I might say that um, I'm concerned, Miss, Mr. or Mrs. Lawyer, that if I left you on the jury, that the uh, other jurors would look to you and, and tend to do whatever you say. And I'm, I'm worried about that. How do you feel about that? And then, and then when I use the inevitable peremptory on that lawyer, then uh, jurors understand. I, I have had a judge on a jury with a pretty good result, and I had a lawyer on a jury with an excellent result. But generally, I would not, they were extraordinary individuals whom I knew, uh, knew something about, and I had some information on them that led me to believe they'd be good jurors. But generally, I'd absolutely agree I wouldn't want a lawyer, certainly not one I didn't know on the jury. And Jim, how do you handle when you have a juror that potentially you think you have boxed in as a cause challenge and the court is attempting to rehabilitate that juror and asks the typical question, can you be fair? Can you follow the law? What do you do either with that juror, if that juror then says yes, or with the court when they ask such a question? Well, I might try to come back uh, with further questioning and ask, I know you'd try to follow the law, but would the prosecution have a head start? Or I might not. Uh, fortunately, these uh, challenges for cause are discussed outside the presence of the other jurors. So we have an opportunity to push back on the judge a little bit. And I frequently would point out to the judge that the fact that a juror says in substance, I will follow the law, I will not say in open court that I intend to defy the judge and defy the law, doesn't really tell us anything about how the person feels about following that law. It, it, we've, we're only in this place because the juror has already expressed strong reservations about some particular aspect of the law. So I would hope to persuade the judge of that. Uh, I, I'm seeing, uh, thankfully, less tendency for judges to, to believe in such a question. I don't think it's a very useful question, but it's true that some judges still ask it. Some judges will still get some pushback from jurors, and, and I've actually found that in recent years, the, the rulings on challenges for cause have been pretty fair. But Always important to save your peremptories. That's what peremptories are really for, is for just that situation where you lose that round with the judge and you don't want to have burned all your peremptories. Yeah, and I have some in reserve to get rid of that juror. And let's talk about peremptory challenges a little bit. Janet, do you have any sort of uh, techniques that you use in either um, waiting for the prosecution to use some of theirs before you use yours or using all of them every time, no matter what? What's your usual typical use of peremptory challenges. Sure. So obviously you're limited in how many people you want off your jury. Sometimes you want everybody off your jury. Unfortunately, you don't have that choice and you have to accept some. Um, I think it's really important to keep track of the number of peremptories that you have left and the number of peremptories that the 
prosecution has left because during the jury selection process, if one side accepts the panel as constituted, you have the next move. Either you accept or you also start using your challenges. And so knowing and looking out into the audience, seeing who's coming up is also very important. So, you know, in in a, a felony a criminal case, state case, non-life, you'll have 10. So that's a good number to start out with. But I wouldn't burn them on just anybody. I would start kicking the ones that I know I'm not going to get for cause um, and start keeping track of the ones that I definitely want off. Um, if there are jurors that I can live with, I'm not crazy about, I may not burn a peremptory on that particular person right away because there may be somebody worse that's going to be filling in the next spot. So it's it's tricky, but it's uh, I think with time and with experience, you, you get much better at it um, as you go along. But definitely keeping track of the numbers and knowing how many you have left is, is crucial. Jim, do you have anything to add to Janet's comments? Well, I would say that we, in exercising the peremptories, we want to look not only to whether somebody's going to be a favorable or unfavorable juror, but how much influence they're going to have on other jurors. Sometimes you can see a juror's not on your side, but they're not going to be particularly persuasive or influential with the other jurors, and so you, you can live with them. Also, sometimes somebody's kind of a wild juror, a little bit unpredictable, a little irrational, and you feel like you can't live with that juror, but you also know that the prosecution really can't either. And so if you're a little patient in exercising your peremptories as to that juror, sometimes the prosecution will get rid of them for you by exercising a peremptory of their own. Now, we didn't touch upon this in the seminar today, but I have noticed in the past several years that judges have been more inclined to allow for jury questionnaires. Is that something that you've both seen happen? And if so, how do you utilize those jury questionnaires? Well, you're right about that. The jury questionnaires are a lot of work. They're difficult to construct well. It's nice if you can get a little help from somebody else and not just have to do it all yourself. But it does make it a little easier for jurors to register strong or even outrageous opinions and sort of out themselves if they're an overly strong or outrageous person. So, yeah, if you can go with a jury questionnaire, that's a great way to go. I've only seen it in more serious cases, homicides. But my general belief is the more information you can get, the better. And so I would be in favor of a jury questionnaire. And speaking of more information about jurors, Jim, you mentioned a couple of times today about researching jurors in advance. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, oftentimes we uh, don't have too much time or available information, but we should do what we can. And so if we have an attorney who's a possible uh, juror, then we should uh, try to find out what we can about the nature of that person. If we know other people who uh, know that person, we should ask them. One time I, I had a possible court of appeal research attorney uh, as a possible juror, and I had an opportunity over the lunch hour to talk to some colleagues of that research attorney, and they told me that this particular research attorney frequently argued with her very prosecution-oriented uh, judge. And I thought, well, that's the kind of juror I might want to have. And so I was not afraid to have her on the jury, and she did vote with the defense. So you do what you can. If you, if you know that uh, the person has relatives, talk to the relatives. Obviously, if, if the relatives are the kind of people who'd be offended by such an inquiry, then you can't go there. You can go on Facebook 
if they are exposed to the public, a lot of people limit what they can see to their friends. So you won't be able to do that with them. You certainly can't try to friend somebody uh, while revealing that you're an attorney. That would be a prohibited contact with a juror. So you, you do what you can on the Internet and over the telephone, and that may not be much, but you do what you can. Shifting towards some of the um, newer attorneys that are out there and are hopefully listening, I think one of the issues that they have is how to just start jury voir dire, how to get you know the jurors to know them a little bit better and introduce themselves and just begin questioning. Do either of you have tips on how a lawyer can talk a little bit about themselves and explaining the process at the beginning of voir dire? Sure. For the newer practitioners, I think, and even some experienced practitioners, some people just hate getting up in front of a group of people and having to ask questions. And so even myself, before I actually get up there, my heart starts beating a little quicker. But as soon as the first question comes out, then I'm good. I think it's important to think about the process, not just being of you standing up there in front of these jurors trying to ask them questions. It's just more about having a dialogue more about having a conversation. And I think once you can get yourself to treat the process that way, you're more likely to get jurors to start talking in a more conversational way and therefore give up more information, which is the whole whole uh, point in asking the questions that you want to ask to make sure that they are not going to be biased against your client and they're going to be fair in, in, in the case. And Jim, during our seminar today, you equated jury selection when you were speaking to the jurors and introducing yourself to something like a job interview. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Well, we all know that if we go in for a job interview, the interviewer is going to be trying to learn about us and predict what kind of an employee we might be. And when we're engaged in jury selection, we're wondering what kind of a juror this person might be. And the only way to get there is to ask some difficult questions. So I like to explain to jurors that that's what we're going to do and to ask their permission. I mean, technically, we really don't need their permission to ask tough questions, but it's polite to do that. And I think jurors appreciate the fact that we're doing that. And I think it makes them a little more accepting. And we can also talk about the fear in the courtroom that accompanies this. Uh, Even though we as defense attorneys have done this many times, there's still fear for us in speaking to a room full of strangers. And we can acknowledge the prospect of jurors' fears that they've perhaps never been in a courtroom before, and they've got to speak to a room full of strangers. So that's something we have in common. And I think that shared experience helps make it easier for both sides to talk to one another. I think we are all used to hearing from friends and family when they are uh, sent their jury notice that, oh, we have jury duty. When you get uh, into jury selection, how do you deal with the prospective jurors coming in not wanting to be there? Well, a couple of things. When I mentioned the uh, job interview aspect of being a prospective juror, I I mentioned in in passing that I know this is a job that they didn't apply for, but I also mentioned that to me and my client, it's the most important job they'll ever have. I think that as the jurors are questioned by the judge and by me, and by the prosecution, they reveal how badly they don't want to be on the jury. And I let them reveal that. They reveal it by their answers, by, uh, in some cases, transparent 
attempts to say the, the wrong thing so that they'll deliberately get kicked, maybe by their body language or their tone of voice or their expressions. And I don't want people who are overly happy to be on a jury or who are overly angry about being on a jury. I want the, more the average person. And Janet, do you have anything to add to that? Sure. In a criminal case, I think it's important to impress upon the jury that the case, even though they don't want to be here, that the case is very important. It's important to the judge, it's important to the prosecution, and it's extremely important to my client. So the question that I ask is, if you are chosen to be a juror on this case, will you give this case the attention that it needs? Because you are going to make a very, very important decision about my client. And that's how I would address it. That's great advice. Before we close out today, I would like to get your contact information for any listeners out there that may have some follow-up questions on jury selection. Janet, how can listeners reach you? Sure, I've got a website. It's www.thehongfirm.com, and that's T-H-E-H-O-N-G-F-I-R-M.com. And Jim, how can somebody reach you? I have no website. Uh, my email address is lamb, L-A-M-B-E, Jim, spelled as one word, at hotmail.com. My telephone number is 559-439-1352. Thank you both. Well, we've reached the end of the road for today's episode. I want to thank both Jim and Janet for joining us today. We also want to thank our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time for another episode of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Bye.